Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A reminder, this Bible study is interactive, or it can be. That is, you can text if you do that. You can text your questions into us. We can review them. They'll send them up to me, and I can decide if, if I want to answer them or not. Or Wait a minute, let me rephrase that. I'll decide if I can answer it or not, if, if I even am remotely close to knowing the answer. But sometimes we have a lot of questions. Sometimes we don't have very many. Last time I think we didn't have any, and I asked why, and that is simply because they said we were about to put them out, and you started answering the questions that were coming in, Um, So we didn't put them up since you're already answering them. So that's a good sign. But uh, if you desire to do that, we invite you to text um, the questions in. I presume that they have already or will give instructions on the screen as to how to do that, to be reminded of that every week. And then also on the way out, you can stop by and ask any of our technical people how to... um, get involved with receiving the updates on Expound if you want to make this a part of your daily, weekly um, spiritual diet. uh, We invite you to do that as well. We'll turn in your Bibles tonight to Exodus chapter 19. We want to look at chapter 19 and 20, if possible, tonight. Of course, that all depends on questions we get texted and and um, and just how long it takes to get through chapter 19 itself before we get into 20. But let's pray together. Father, we've had such a glorious week. Looking back, we thank you for the way you orchestrated the weather on Friday, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. It was so beautiful both days, and it was flanked by uh, pretty nasty days um, on either side of that. So we just uh, thank you for your mercy extended. And so many people came out and what we're really grateful for is the hundreds of decisions for Christ that we were able to see and be a part of. We thank you for that. Thank you for them. And pray that they would grow every single day in your grace and in your knowledge. We also thank you, Lord, that we do live in a nation that is protected by a foundation of laws that gives us the freedom to assemble on a night like this and freely worship you. We don't take that for granted, but we count that as one of your mercies to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you remember back to the year 2003 when a monument in an Alabama state building, uh, a monument of the Ten Commandments, was removed by a a judge. It was placed there by uh, Chief Justice Roy Moore. And it was placed there, but then the courts deemed that it was unlawful and had it forcibly removed because they said it violated the separation of church and state. Now, obviously, Roy Moore wanted the monument of the Ten Commandments placed in that public building as a symbol. The symbol was like the symbol of Moses. We want it known that God's laws are greater than ours or our opinions. Having it removed was also symbolic. The symbolism was, well, you couldn't miss it. 
It meant, no thanks, God. We don't really want your laws that would govern our laws. We have our own way of doing things. So more and more we have seen this over the last couple hundred years of our nation's history where God gets edged out, put out. And man's ideas or opinions are placed there in place of it. Now, whenever God's laws are pushed aside, we lose the standard. And when we lose the standard that is objective, that is God's law, we then don't have a moral consensus, a standard that we can all agree on. And when you lose a standard and a moral consensus, you have pure existentialism. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. So, whereas at one time in our country, people were saying, do what is right, more and more people are saying, do what you think is right for you at the time. Can you see how different that is, one from the other? Do what is right is fixed. There's a standard. There's a moral consensus. There's no existential. There's something fixed. But now it's do what you feel is right for you at the time. It's very, very different. Well, we've been in uh, the book of Exodus, and we come really to the core of it in these chapters, especially chapter 19 and chapter 20 is the highlight. We've told you before that the book of Exodus can be broken up into three parts, and I want to remind you of those parts right now. Chapters 1 through 12 is the first part of the book of Exodus. That's the domination by Egypt. The children of Israel are slaves for 400 years in Egypt. Domination by Egypt. Section number 2, liberation from Egypt. That's chapters 13 through 18. And number 3, revelation after Egypt. And that begins here in chapter 19 all the way to the end of the book. This is the revelation that God gives His people. At the heart of this revelation is a word that you have to know. You need to know this. It's a must-know word. It's the word covenant. I know you've heard that term before, covenant. If you were to look up what a covenant is, a covenant means an agreement that governs a relationship. That's all it is. An agreement that governs a relationship. It could be a relationship between two cities, two people, two nations. Or in this case, a relationship between God and people. That's a covenant. An agreement that governs a relationship. Now, a covenant is very important to God. It's the covenant that moves God to release the slaves from Egypt. You may remember back in chapter 2 when they're crying out to God, it says, And the Lord remembered the covenant that He had made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Therefore He heard their cries. See, God had promised to Abraham a land that his people would occupy, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so remembering that covenant, not forgetting that covenant, is the reason God continues with his plan to redeem Israel from out of Egypt and place them in the land we call Israel today. They called Canaan back then. Now when it comes to a covenant... We mentioned to you before, but it bears reiterating tonight, that there were 
for our purposes, a couple of different kinds of covenants. One was an unconditional covenant. One was a conditional covenant. An unconditional covenant has no conditions. A conditional covenant has conditions. The covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was unconditional. God says, I'm going to give you and your descendants the land, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession. Sounds pretty unconditional, doesn't it? I'm going to give everlasting possession. Here's the catch. In comes covenant number two at this point when it comes to the land, and that is a conditional covenant, the Mosaic covenant, because it's named after Moses. The Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant. So follow me closely. Whereas the covenant God made with Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, was unconditional, the Mosaic covenant was conditional. The land there to occupy, unconditional. Their tenure in the land and God's blessing them in the land is conditional. So what might happen if God puts them in the land, if they don't obey God, if they fail to obey God, God says, I'll kick you out of the land. I'll bring you back, but I'll kick you out. And I might keep kicking you out till you get it right. I'm giving you the land. It's an everlasting possession for you and your descendants. But their tenure in the land and God's blessing them in the land based on the covenant of Moses is a conditional covenant. Something else about this covenant. Not only is it conditional, it's, to use the Latin term, an ad interim. An ad interim covenant. That is, it's temporary. It's going to last from Moses until Christ. It's going to last from Moses until Christ. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Paul in Galatians 3 will refer to this covenant of the law as a schoolmaster that would lead us to Christ, that would point us to Christ, so that that first covenant isn't binding on us any longer. Okay. Moses and the children of Israel arrive at Mount Sinai. They get there. It's a frightening scene because there's lightning and thunder and earthquake and and the people are in fear before the mountain. Moses will go up the mountain and receive the law and come down and give it to the people. When he goes up onto Mount Sinai, he's going to get two things. Number one, he's going to get the law. Number two, he's going to get a set of blueprints for the tabernacle. He's going to get the law and the tabernacle, and both will be discussed in the rest of the book of Exodus. The law will facilitate the people's obedience to God. Got it? The tabernacle will facilitate their worship of God. Obedience and worship. Obedience and worship. Those form the two basic parts of of the covenant with Moses. Obedience and worship, the two central expressions of their faith. I wonder if I should get a little deeper. If you don't mind, I will. Because people that study Near Eastern documents have studied chapter 19 and 20 and even the rest of the book of Exodus, and they've discovered that the form of the covenant, the terminology used in the covenant, 
is something people thousands of years ago at Moses' time were very familiar with. It it was very much like other covenants that were drawn up between kingdoms or even between individuals, between a king and its people. And in those ancient structures, there were a couple of different forms. There was, number one, the parity covenant, which means um, two parts were equal. We're equals. We'll make a covenant based upon our equality, a parity covenant. The second type of covenant from ancient times was called a suzerainty covenant, after the word suzerain or suzerain, which means a covenant between a superior and an inferior, between a monarch and its people, between a king and the servants. It's this second form that we read about in Exodus. God is the Lord. He's supreme. And all of the rest of the people, the people of Israel, that God is making this deal with, are the servants of the Most High God. So that sort of frames it. Now, if you want an outline, chapter 19 is the preparation for the covenant. In chapter 20, we'll have the preface to the covenant and the principles of the covenant and the people or the participation of the covenant. If we make it that far, if not, we'll get to the preparation. Um, I have a text question that says, what's the difference between a covenant and a contract? Well, it depends on the nature of the contract. You can have a contract for anything, but a covenant is more formal and the stipulations of a covenant are more public than a contract. I'll give you an example. You could go in and buy a house and you'll just, we'll have it, a couple of people signing it and understanding what's on the document. When you make a marriage vow, that's more of a covenant. There's public accountability. You state the vows. And you understand the vows and people hear the vows. So there's more of a public accountability and a public stating of a covenant more so than a contract. And you'll see that here. Let's look at chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim, which is rest spot. And had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. Now, we don't exactly know which mountain it is. Uh, Most people, most scholars will point to a mountain peak in the Sinai desert called Jebel Musa, 7,500 feet above sea level. You can go there in August. It's so hot during the day. You get up to the top of Mount Sinai early in the morning, you'll need a coat. High altitude. And uh, the best thing to do, if you ever see Mount Sinai, is climb it about 3 in the morning with flashlights so that you get up on top as the sun is rising. It's the most magnificent sight you have seen. It's utterly spectacular. We've taken a group there before and been up on Mount Sinai. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. Notice two names are combined. House of Jacob, children of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In that little statement, there's three things the Lord tells them. And Moses is to tell them publicly. Number one... 
Remember who you used to be. Notice again the two names. They're synonyms for the same people. But two names. House of Jacob. You used to be a small little family. Now you're the children of Israel. You've grown from a family to a nation. Now oftentimes... The Lord, even though Jacob's name was changed, yes, to Israel, that was his new name, Israel. Jacob is a name that refers back before that man was changed by God, after that wrestling match you know about in Genesis. When he acted as a man of the flesh, conniving and scheming. So many times when when the children of Israel act really childlike and fleshly, God will give them their old name. Hey, sons of Jacob, a little reminder to them. You're acting like the guy who, before he was changed by God. But both of these are synonyms. Remember who you used to be. I think it's always good for us to look back and remember who we were, where God took us from. Which brings us really to the second thing God is telling them. Remember where I took you from. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Remember the 400 years of slavery you were under when you cried out to me in despair and I brought you out. The third thing, remember how I cared for you. Notice he says, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. The word for eagle in Hebrew is the word nesher and It refers to a particular type of eagle that was well known in that area. It's called the griffin eagle. The griffin eagle, um, a majestic bird, becomes here a symbol or a metaphor for how God treated his people, the relationship God wanted and was having with his people. There's some characteristics about this eagle. Number one, it would build its nests in inaccessible places, like on high canyon ledges way out in the wilderness, so that the little eaglets were totally, totally dependent on Mama Eagle. Inaccessible places way out of the way where those little eaglets had to totally depend on Mom. So God took the children of Israel to His nest, the wilderness, way far away from any natural provision at all. There was no running water. There was no Nile River. There was no food like they had in Egypt that grew because of the Nile Delta. God took them to an inaccessible place where they learned complete and total trust. Number two, the Nesher, the griffin eagle, is very protective. It's got a heavy beak, strong legs, sharp curved talons. It's a bird of prey. And all I can say, if you ever try to steal eggs from the nest of a griffin eagle or to steal young eaglets, you better be born again. (laughs) They will stop at nothing in protecting their young. So when God brings his people out to the nest of the wilderness and the Egyptians come to destroy them and the children of Israel, the little eaglets, cry out to God, God himself, the mother eagle with a strong, heavy beak and curved talons, goes after the Egyptians and stops at nothing in destroying the enemy of his people. Number three, here's something interesting about this particular eagle. The griffin eagle matures very 
slowly. Very slowly. It takes up to three years for that little eaglet to become mature. Now, when it reaches around that age of maturity, out there in the inaccessible place, in the wilderness, totally dependent upon mom, the mother wants to teach the little eaglet to fly, and the best way to do it is to just kick it out of the nest. And what does the little eaglet do? Just spirals downward. Gravity takes it down to splat on the earth. But before it splats, that, that mother comes down and sweeps up the little eaglet, lifting, lifting it up by her wings and bears it on the eagle's wings back up to the nest. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, kick it out of the nest. Little eaglet flaps its wings because it's seen mom do it. Eventually, it matures slowly, but eventually... It'll learn how to use its wings. It'll grow. The purpose of God taking these people out to the desert, to an inaccessible nest, protected by the mother with a strong care, was to get them to spread their wings and fly, to become mature, to totally depend on God, and to learn how to be spiritually mature. So it's it's very telling the language that God uses. I bore you up on eagles' wings. Now therefore, now watch this verse. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. There's a relationship between two words, if and then. That shows you that it's a conditional covenant, right? A bilateral covenant. It's not unilateral. It's not God saying, I will, I will, I will. I'm going to do this. You just sit back and watch it happen. This is, if you do this, then I will do that. The covenant is spelled out in general terms. Now, there's a principle behind this. How can you prove that you love God? There has to be some visible, tangible proof. Is it a fuzzy, warm feeling you get when you think of God or you hear the word Jesus? Oh, whenever I hear the word, I I get fuzzy feelings inside. It's like my soul starts to glow. I feel positive thoughts. Big whoop. It has to be something more than ethereal. It has to be tangible. It has to be visible. It has to be real. And the way you can tell it's real is by obedience. By obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Same principle. It's under a completely different covenant, but the principle still remains the same. If you do this, then you'll be a special treasure to me. The Hebrew word segulah could be translated treasure or a special object of care, something of great value to me. Now, in the New Testament, the if is removed. Because of what Jesus did for you in purchasing you, you are a special treasure to God. I wonder if you actually think of yourself as God thinks about you. I wonder if you put in your mind that you are to Him a special treasure. Because you see, the value of something is determined 
by what a person's willing to pay for it. Make sense? Jesus gave a little parable. He talked to man about a man who sold all that he had to buy a field for the treasure that is in it. I think that's a picture not of us selling everything to buy Christ. That's ridiculous. It's by grace we're saved, not by works, not by us doing anything. I think that's a picture of the Lord giving up all of the prerogatives of heaven, coming to this earth and being willing to purchase us by shedding his own blood. Now that proves if God was willing to spend that amount on you, you're pretty valuable to him. You're pretty special to him. So I don't know what self-talk you live with. I'm nothing. I'm no good for nothing. But if you do that, that's sin. Because God says you're a special treasure to him. Now verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So special treasure. There's God's intention for his people. Special treasure, kingdom of priests, holy nation. These are the words which you shall, shall speak to the children of Israel. A kingdom of priests. Peter picks up on this thought, does he not? In his epistle, he calls us a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Here it's called a kingdom of priests. I love that. God says, here's my intention for you. Not a kingdom of politicians. That would do no one no good. A kingdom of priests. A priest is a mediator. A priest stands between God and men and mediates and and grabs the two parties in the covenant and brings them together, superintends the covenant. God's original intent for the nation of Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, to be able to represent God to the world and bring the world, attract the world, the Gentile nations to God. The problem with the Jewish nation is as time went on, they turned inward and not outward. They became very restrictive instead of embracive. And so by the New Testament times, very strict Jews would walk through the streets of the city of Jerusalem and take their robes and pull them close to their body, lest their robes would touch a Gentile, somebody from another nation, a non-Jewish nation, and they would become defiled. They'd have cooties, spiritual cooties. We do exactly the same thing when we lose a heart for the lost world and it becomes all inward, all about us, all about just Christians. And we lose our focus of what our intended purpose by God in this world is. Sort of like a priest, sort of like a mediator to bring other nations, other people to know him. A kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. Notice the third designation, a holy nation. Holy means different, set apart. You know why we're different? Because we march to a different drumbeat. We are supposed to not mimic the world's values, but God's values. We obey God. We love God. Our life centers around Him. And if you live that way, you're different. You're set apart. You're holy. Verse 7, so Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Hmm. Really? That's quite a statement. That's a 
Very ambitious, bold statement. So Moses brought back the words of the people. They will eat those words as time goes on. They're they're good words to say, right? I mean, it sounds good. They're saying, bring it on, God. Everything and anything you tell me to do, us to do, we're going to do it. This is something that later on, God will commend them for and comment on that. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, as Moses restates the law, let me just read it to you. You will go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you. This is the people talking to Moses. And we will hear it. And we will do it. Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Now listen to this. Oh, that they had such a heart in them. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. God said they have the right answer. I like the intention of their heart. But God also recognized the weakness of the human heart in their ability to carry out what their intention was. That's why God says, oh, that they had such a heart within them. Because look at all the laws of Moses, and there are many of them, and we're going to look at them in the next several weeks and months. And and here are the people, even before God says what they are, whatever they are, man, we're going to do it. Now, they won't do it completely. They're going to fail at it. In fact, when we turn to the New Testament and we get the the whole story, Paul the Apostle in the book of Romans says, Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known what sin is except for the law. In other words, the law, when I read the law, it showed me, Man, I'm blowing it. Man, I, I have blown it. I start understanding what sin is because I read all the thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt, do this, don't do that, do the other thing. And so when I read the law, Paul said, it simply pointed out what sin really was. That's why in Galatians 3, the same apostle calls the law a schoolmaster. A schoolmaster. In Greek, a paedagogos. Someone in the Greek or Roman household That was superintending the upbringing of a child. That's a schoolmaster. In wealthy households, the schoolmaster would feed the child, would bathe the child, would discipline the child, and when the child got old enough, would lead the child to the place of education and point out the school he's now to go to. He was the schoolmaster. Now he's leading them along. This child is growing up, and he says, okay, go there for the rest of your education. That's what the law was. The law shows us what sin is, and then when Jesus Christ comes, the law says, okay, I've taken you as far as I can take you. I've shown you how bad you are. Now, here's how you can fix it. There's a Savior. By His blood, by His power, by His work, by His finished act on the cross, a person can be saved. 
a local newspaper in the South, I think it was, decided to um, take an empty column. The editor didn't have an article to put in this blank column. So he just ran a copy of the Ten Commandments. No editorial comments, just the Ten Commandments listed in the newspaper. A couple days later, somebody wrote to him and said, Cancel my subscription. You're now getting too personal. No comment, no editorial comment, just simply the Ten Commandments. The law does that. Have you ever seen those commercials, those shampoo commercials, where the gal's hair is so thick and so shiny and so luxurious, and the promise is if you buy this shampoo and use it, your hair will miraculously look like that. (laughs) never happens, but that's the promise. Compare the hair on the commercial with if you were to take one of her hairs and put it under a microscope. If you took one of those beautiful, shiny hairs and put it under a microscope, what would it look like? Rough, irregular, gnarly. The law is like that microscope. It examines you in the light of the standard that the children of Israel never fully kept. That's why they needed the sacrificial system as part of it. And it tells us the truth, and hopefully it drives us to Christ. More on that as we go. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak to you. They can't see him, but they're going to hear God's voice. And believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people, To the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. There's an inward consecration and there's an outward preparation. The washing, the washing of the clothes, was symbolic of two days worth of consecration inwardly. Now, in ancient times, you, you, you got to just go back a little bit because we, re, we don't relate to this. You go home and you have a closet. You have more than one set of clothes. You have a few. They didn't. So the changing of garments and the bathing was very, very irregular back then, especially way out in the wilderness. So when somebody would bathe and change their clothes, it was often employed in a covenant to symbolize a new beginning of something. Now, later on, the children of Israel will be called upon to bathe before they go up to worship. And they'll dig out these little pools. They still use them in Judaism today. It's called a mikvah, which means a collection, a gathering of water. A mikvah, or in the plural, mikvahot, these pools that you would walk in, completely get cleansed by water, put your robe on, go up to the temple to worship. So the symbolism of that is employed here. And let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds on the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. So not only wash your clothes, but watch your step. Don't come too close. Now, before you go, boy, is God mean, I would say God's nice. 
I'd say God is simply giving them the parameters and the restrictions so they don't die. Because here's God's power being revealed from a mountaintop to mankind. God and all of that grandeur and all of that glory, mortal man can't handle it. God out of love, God out of love puts a restriction. As a parent, you know what that's like. If you have a son or a daughter and you, you wrestle with them. I remember wrestling with my son. I didn't give him my full strength when I wrestled with him. He wouldn't be here today. So I would restrict my power and I would set up boundaries that I had to protect him. So he would think like, boy, I really did good. In fact, I beat dad tonight. Yeah, right. In your dreams. So God sets up the boundaries, sets up the restrictions, lest they die. So Moses went down from the mountaintop to the people, sanctified the people, purified them for worship, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it shall come to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain. The sound of a trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood on the foot of the mountain. Now, a trumpet wasn't a silver trumpet, but you've seen this before. It was a ram's horn. It was a shofar. So, you ready? It would have sort of sounded like this. Only better. Trumpet was very loud. It commanded their attention. This was the giving of the law. Moses receives it from God. Verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in a fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked. It was not a comforting, pretty, oh, isn't that beautiful sight? It was scary. It's like being close to a volcano. Fire. Symbolic of the purity of God, the holiness of God, the purging of God. Reinforced by the quaking that went on and the uh, smoke that went up. The ancient rabbis used to say, say, no mortal man can gaze at the unveiled majesty of God. The New Testament says, no man has seen God at any time. He wouldn't be able to handle it. Now, before we move on, I want to insert something that I hope will now make sense to you. If you've ever read the book of Hebrews and you thought, gosh, this is a little bit cryptic. What is it saying when it speaks about that? There's a passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, I want to read to you now. It says this, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, the physical real Mount Sinai, and to the blackness and the darkness and the tempest. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The writer of Hebrews makes the difference between the old law, the old covenant, and the New Testament, the new covenant. And herein lies the difference between the synagogue and the church. The synagogue looks back to the law of Moses, the covenant of Moses. The church looks to the covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. The synagogue looks back and sees the covenant of Moses as an eternal covenant. 
The church says the covenant of Moses, while valid, simply pointed to Christ. It's an ad interim covenant, and it ended when Christ came in terms of having jurisdiction over a person's life. It's a schoolmaster that pointed me to Christ. And so I live in grace. We have a text question. Let's throw it up. It's a great question. How were people saved in the Old Testament? You know what the answer is? The same way they were in the New Testament, by faith. By faith. Any kind of a covenant, even if it means you had to obey God to fulfill the terms, even if it means you had to bring animal sacrifices, you had to believe that those sacrifices were efficacious, that they would work, that your obedience mattered to God. So that same principle of faith, even though it was through the works of the law, was employed in the Old Testament. The Old Testament looked forward to the new, anticipated the new, and the new covenant is the fulfillment of the old. But the big difference is the old covenant said do, 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 do. The new covenant says done, 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 done. Fulfilled in Christ, you're a special treasure because of God's grace. Verse 19, and when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder. No, I'm not going to try that. Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. I remember reading this when I was on top of Mount Sinai. I had just climbed hours And I'm panting. And I see that Moses went up to the mountain. And then God says, go back down the mountain and come back up. I'd never read this verse the same since that experience. I almost thought about actually doing it just to reinforce it. I said, no, no. Verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. That's sort of puzzling, isn't it? What priests? There wasn't a priesthood even established yet. The priesthood will be established in the law. Who are the priests? Well, probably firstborn sons of Israel. God said a few chapters back, consecrate to me the firstborn. Later on in chapter 24, I believe, these young men are called upon to make sacrifices for the people. Again, before the priesthood is established and then the priesthood will be established. But in the interim time, these young men, firstborn leaders of families will act as priests. In those days, ancient times, there were often priests for the family. The father was the priest and would pass it on to the firstborn son. Job acted as a priest for his family during the patriarchal period. Prayed for his kids, made sacrifices for his kids. Job chapter 1. So that's probably what it refers to. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up. Thank you very much. You and Aaron with you 
But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. There's an overarching message that God is getting through. And that is between holy God and sinful man, there is distance. You can't just rush into God's presence and go, Hey, God, what's up? It's me, yo. Because if you did, if you acted presumptuously, you could become like a couple of people you'll read about, Nadab and Abihu. God will kill them, priests of His, who act presumptuously in the way and the manner in which they approach God. So one of the the overarching signals you get in the old covenant of Moses, unlike the grace of the New Testament, is the distance, the veil will separate the holy place and the holy of holies. Ripped at the crucifixion, we discussed that last week, but very present in the old covenant. Now we come to chapter 20 and we'll see how far we get. Now we come to the preface to the covenant. Just a couple of verses. And the Lord spoke these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I find it interesting that God constantly tells His own people to look back. Now I remember hearing from people. Don't look back. Just move forward. It's not profitable. It's not healthy to to look backwards. Well, I think they're wrong. I think it's important to look back for a point of reference, to see how far you've come, to measure how far you've come, how your relationship is going with the Lord. I think it's important to know where you're going, where you've come from, and, and the ground you've covered. So God tells them, look, have, has them look back. Now, as you look back, learn from the past. Don't get bogged down by the past. Let your past be a guidepost, never a hitching post. Don't stop there. Don't say, well, this is who I am. I can never get past this. Yes, you can by God's grace and by the power of His Spirit. But it's good to look back, and He's done that a couple of times so far that we've read tonight. Now we come to the Ten Commandments. Let's call these the principles of the covenant. You can call them God's top ten list. He takes all of life and he breaks it down into ten principal segments that govern all of life that is important to him. In your relationship with God and in your relationship with people. Basically, God expects two things of his people, you'll see here. Number one, supreme devotion to him. And number two, sincere affection for one another. Supreme devotion to Him, sincere affection for one another. So, in the Ten Commandments, you can divide them in two. Look at them as two tables, two tablets. The first four are vertical. They deal with your relationship to God. The second six are horizontal. They deal with your relationship to humanity, to other people, to your brother, to your sister. Vertical, horizontal, two tablets. Sincere affection for one another, supreme devotion to God. I found the video tonight quite enlightening, quite interesting. 
Harper's Magazine actually did a little survey to find out how many Americans knew the Ten Commandments. Their survey said only 40% of Americans could name more than four of the Ten Commandments. Now, before we go, wow, I can't believe it. If you were just asked cold to name the Ten Commandments, I wonder how you do. I wonder how I do. If we've committed them sufficiently to memory, these, these ten words. These are ten commandments. They're not ten suggestions. They're not ten great ideas. They're ten commandments. And there's ten. There's not five. You can't say, I like this one, but not that one. There's ten, not five. There's ten, not nineteen. As Judaism developed, they came up with what they called 613 laws. 248 positive, what you should do. 365 negative, what you shouldn't do. That governed all of life. God gives us ten. Our relationship to Him a relationship to each other. Here's the first commandment. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Better translation, besides me, or literally over against me. You know, God is pretty simple and practical. I'm God. You're not. I, as God, am unique. I stand alone. There are no other gods besides me, so you don't have any other gods besides me. Now, before you think that God is some paranoid being who has to say this, why would God have to say this? It's simple. It's practical. Because all of the other gods and goddesses the people were worshiping, listen carefully, were fake The reason God says, you'll have no other gods before me, because there are no other gods and goddesses at all. Worshiping any other god but him is like hugging a mannequin. That's what it's like. You can have a mannequin if you want. You can talk to it and you can dress it up and carry it around. You're a nut. It's not real. It's not a real person. You can have false gods and goddesses. You can name them all sorts of things. You can feel really good about addressing them, they're powerless. It's ridiculous. They don't exist. The only God that does exist is this one. So it only makes sense as God to say, I'm unique, I'm God, you're not, there's only one, that's me. Forget about it. None others. The writer of the book of Psalms, one of them, David, will say in Psalm 115 about these false gods and goddesses. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have hands, but they can't handle. They have feet, but they can't walk. They have mouths, but they can't speak. So here's a guy who carves it out, paints it up. Big deal. I mean, can you take your little god shopping with you and say, you get the vegetables, I'll get the meat? You fill up the car with gas while I make the phone call? You can't. It's... No power, helpless. That's the first commandment. Second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is on earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. 
For I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing thousands or mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, let me just add this, because we're not going to go into extreme depth in these. We did a whole series. You can get any of these things, download them for free on our website. We did a series called God's Top Ten. We took every commandment. Sometimes we took two weeks to do one single commandment. So we went into great depth as to the meaning of all these verses and all these words. I'll just commend that to you. Now, if the first commandment tells us whom to worship, then the second commandment tells us how we're to worship. The first commandment says you will have no false gods. The second commandment says you will not worship the true God in any false manner. You can see the distinction and you can see the difference. There's basically two sources of information about God and two only. Source number one, revelation. God reveals it to us. He tells us about himself. God's self-disclosure written to us in the law, in the prophets, in the gospels, the Bible, the word of God. That's revelation. Second source of information, imagination. Imagination. God reveals it to us or we make it up. And he reveals about himself in his word and in his creation. We can see his power, his majesty, his splendor, his beauty by looking around us. But it doesn't tell us about his love or his moral attributes, so we need the word. That's revelation. If you don't get your information about God from revelation, then all you're left with is your imagination. And you have people standing around or writing books or teaching college courses going, I imagine God to be, and you fill in the blank. And then you teach the class, whatever you've made up. So those are the two sources. Either God reveals it to you or you imagine it. So God says, this is who I am. have no other gods before me. And I want you to worship me the right way. The right way. No images, nothing. Why is that? And by the way, he's not wholesale condemning art. It's not about art. A lot of times people, this is the question, what about art? It's not what it's dealing with. It's dealing with idolatry. That's what it's dealing with. Totally different realms. Why no images of God? It's simple. There is not a single image you could ever cast or paint or make of God that would capture all who he is. So any image you make is by necessity limiting. Therefore, it doesn't convey the truth. So God says, forget about it. Don't, don't even make an image. And sometimes people will say, well, Skip, when you pray, what do you, what do you picture? Answer, Nothing. I don't need to picture God as anything. God has sufficiently revealed who he is. I can accept that by faith. I don't need to picture Jesus with auburn hair and blue eyes or a certain color of skin or the way he parts it or a mullet or anything like that. Like J.I. Packer said something interesting. He said, metal images are the result of mental images. 
You can tell what a person thinks about God by what image they make to represent him. So the children of Israel will make a bull, a golden calf, to represent God's strength. But boy, that didn't tell you anything about his mercy or his grace or his generosity or his love. Only one particular attribute that doesn't tell you the rest of the story. So God says no images. Third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now what does that mean exactly? Is that referring to swear words? Is that referring to certain kinds of prayers, certain kinds of verbiage that we would use in describing God? Well, it's 8.30, so we're going to answer that next week. We'll let that third commandment hang until then. Oh, come on. We can wait. Okay. Let me read that to you in... Let me read that to you in three different translations to help you understand it. Then we'll close. The Knox translation, the John Knox, who took it from the Latin Vulgate, translated, You will not take the name of the Lord your God lightly on your lips. Another translation, the Amplified Bible. You will not take the name of your God lightly, frivolously, in false affirmations or profanely. All of the above. The Jerusalem version of the Bible. You will not utter the name of Yahweh your God to misuse it. The word vain in your text is the Hebrew word shav, which means to empty something of its content or of its meaning. So what does it mean? It sort of means all of the above. It means the name of God should never be used, uttered, sung, written in an empty, frivolous, or insincere way. Lightly on your lips. And verse 8 is so controversial about the Sabbath, we will save it for next time. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we can study the law that points us to Christ. The very law that Paul the Apostle said that slayed him. He realized that It wasn't just dealing with outward actions, but inward attitudes, as we will see next week in our study. And thank you, Lord, that not only does the law reveal sin, but it points to a Savior. And I pray we will not rely upon the law to be cleansed, but upon Jesus, who is the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.